Well done, good and faithful servants. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. What a great way to start to get our eyes focused on Jesus and off of ourselves and all the stuff that goes on around us, right? So thanks for being here. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff. If you're visiting with us for the first time, really want to welcome you. Pray that you feel the love of Christ in the room. It's a good church, and I'm very proud to be part of it. A couple things. Um, Last weekend, pretty cool. Pretty cool, right? Pastor John was here. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, He's amazing. He just amazes me. So you might have heard, you know, preaching ages you a little bit, you know, and so Pastor John, when he preached on Saturday, he was 77. When he preached on Sunday, he was 78. So he aged a year overnight. And the joke about all that is Sunday was his birthday. So, you know, and he didn't want me to tell, you know, say anything. And, you know, he's kind of gets embarrassed that way. But uh, we did the whole Pastor Emeritus thing. And he's like, that's enough. But, uh, yeah, it was his birthday last Sunday. So if you think about it, if you have his email or text to wish him a belated birthday. And then the other funny thing about all that is, uh, you know, I make up the preaching schedule. And I, I don't know why I put myself the week after Pastor John. Uh, probably not real smart on my part. I should have thrown somebody else in after PJ. So if you can lower your expectations quite a bit, that would be, that'd be awesome so I can meet your expectations. Um, anyway, kind of joking. But it was really, really, really good to have um, PJ here and... Um, Man, he just amazes me every time I hear him open his mouth. He's so gifted and we're so blessed. we got a lot of ground to cover. We're in Mark chapter 1. We're going to finish up chapter 1 in the book of Mark. So we're going to be in Mark 1, 29 to 45. So it's 17 verses. So we're going to start uh, here. We're kind of here like right now. And we're going to, we need to get here. And I'm not going to do a straight line. We're going to kind of do this little zigzag. And we're going to eventually end up in Mark 1. So bear with me. Um, yeah. So let's let her rip. Let me open up with this. This is called Behold the Man. And it's about Jesus. Behold the man. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was the age of 30. For three years, he was an itinerant preacher or a traveling preacher. He never wrote a book, he never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. Never traveled more than 200 miles from where he was born. He did none of the things that we usually uh, would associate with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of his dearest friends denied him. Not once, not twice, but three times. He was turned over to his enemies and went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while he was uh, dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property that he had. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, All the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. Can I get an amen? But why? Why? Why is that true? If that's true, and I believe it is with all my heart, why is that true? That's the big question. There's no doubt that each of us in this room, each and every one of us, could rattle off easily at least ten significant, remarkable 
gifted, talented, brilliant, influential, extraordinary people. No doubt. At least ten. Steve Jobs from Apple Computers since passed away. Bill Gates from Microsoft. Sam Walton from Walmart and Sam's Club. Billy Graham. Mother Teresa. Albert Einstein. Abe Lincoln. Pablo Picasso. My wife. Yeah, exactly, right? For all the reasons that are probably pretty obvious by now. Anyone on the Sunday morning kitchen crew? Can I get an amen for that? Yeah, thank you. What makes these people remarkable? Is it their unique skill set and how they're gifted? Is it their intensity in being driven and motivated? Is it their work ethic? Their ability to identify a need and meet that need? Why? Why has the life of Jesus Christ impacted the world like no others? He understood who he was, did Jesus. He understood what he came to accomplish. He understood what it would take in order to accomplish it. He was focused, he was committed, and he was selfless. No different on some level than many of the greats that we just mentioned. But Jesus did one thing. He kept the main thing, the main thing. Jesus kept the main thing, the main thing. Crucifixion, salvation, eternal life, the gospel message that brought us here. What could possibly be greater than the gospel message of Jesus Christ and eternal life because of it? Nothing. I'm not a smart guy. I might fool you often, but I'm just not a really intelligent guy. I know enough of God's Word to be dangerous, but not enough compared to many other people that I know. So I often refer to this passage, 1 Corinthians 2.2. It helps me keep things real simple. And it's the laser beam focus of Paul, and it was of Christ. Paul says, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Oftentimes when I talk to people and we get out on the fringes of doctrine, I just like, I don't know, I'm just not that smart. All I know is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and then I, you know, let's go have lunch. We're going to read through two passages before we get to the book of Mark. We're going to read through John chapter 6 and then Philippians chapter 2, parts of that. And then we're going to pray, and then we're going to go into the book of Mark. Is that all right? So turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 6. starting at verse 52. John 6, verse 52. And the Jews began to argue with one another. They said, how can this man give us flesh to eat? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That means we put our faith and our trust in Jesus who died for us. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And we're in Capernaum in Mark chapter 1. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is difficult. It's a difficult statement. Who can even listen to it? And Jesus, aware that they were grumbling, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to the place where he came? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. 
but there are some of you who do not believe. And Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And so he was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father through Christ. Verse 66, as a result of this, many disciples withdrew and didn't walk with him anymore. And Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? What a great question. It's a great question that we have to wrestle with often in our following Jesus. And Simon Peter answered him, and I love this, one of my favorite parts of Scripture. He says, Lord, where are we going to go? To whom shall we go? Sam Walton? Abe Lincoln? Albert Einstein? Any of those people? You have something nobody else has. You have the words of eternal life. Nobody else had that. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians will be to your right. After Romans and First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read this and then we're going to pray. Philippians 2, starting at verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete, Paul writes, by being of the same mind, church, maintaining the same love, church, united in spirit, church, intent on one purpose, church. And what is that? To be like Christ, verse 3, which is what? Do nothing, not most things, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. As sad as it is, there are some things I still do from selfishness, probably like many of you. It's hard. It's a high calling. But we're to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is what Christ did. In verse 4, do not merely... Remember the word two weeks ago we talked about, don't merely be hearers of the word, but be doers? Same thing. Do not merely look out for your own interests. We're to do that. We're to look out for our own interests. It doesn't say not to. It just says don't merely do that but also for the interests of others, which is what Christ did like nobody else. Verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant. Let me repeat that. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He He let go of that. He couldn't even hold on to it. He let go of that, and then verse 7 he says, he took hold of the form of a bondservant. It's a decision that Christ made. He let go. He couldn't grasp equality with God, even though he was equal with God as his son. He let go of that, and he grasped and took a form of a bondservant, which is a voluntary slave. And he was made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Verse 9, what was the result of all that? For this reason also, God did what? He highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at that name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. That's some serious, serious stuff. 
That's a focus like I've never seen before. Verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. So that's the trick there. Verse 12 is to work out. We need to work out our salvation. It's a workout. And in verse 13 says, so that God can do what? So that God can work in you. We got to work out so God can work in. As followers of Jesus Christ, we got to work out, man. We got to do things to grow our faith, to grow our doctrine, to grow our followership of Jesus Christ. So we work out so He can work in. Why? God is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Lord, help us. How do we do that on our own? We can't. I'm not capable. I'm just not capable. Let's pray. God, as always, we open up our minds and our hearts to you and pray, Lord, that you would do what you please. Speak to us, Lord. Have your way with us, Lord. May we trust you as you do. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Okay, so we've kind of set the table a little bit for Mark chapter 1. So we're going to go to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to be at verse 29 through 45. We're going to read that, and there's four things going on in Mark chapter 1, verse 29 through 45, okay? And I'll point them out as we go through it. So Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 29. Here's the first thing. So Jesus immediately came out of the synagogue there in Capernaum. They came into the house of Simon and Andrew, who he just recruited to be his disciples, also with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. And so the four of them spoke to Jesus, and they said and to come to her to raise her up. And so he did. He took her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. So that's the first deal going on. Jesus comes with four disciples. Simon's mother-in-law is not doing well, and he heals her. Verse 32. When evening came, the same day, after the sun had set, it's the Sabbath day, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. I don't know what that looks like. Interesting, right? And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. So that's the second scenario. First scenario is he, Simon's mother-in-law gets healed from a fever, and then boom, the city's at the front door. Third scenario, verse 35, the next morning early, while it was dark, Jesus got up, he left. He went to a secluded place and was praying there. And Simon... And his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. Notice what Jesus says. Let's go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also. That's what I came for. Jesus knew what he came for. He was focused. And so he went to their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. Verse 40. So that's the third scenario, right? So we got... Fever with the mother-in-law. We got the, the city at the front door. We got Jesus praying in a secluded place. And now a leper comes to him. In verse 40, the leper came, beseeching him, falls on his knees and says, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. And the leprosy was gone. And he sternly warned him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded back in Leviticus 13 as a testimony to the priests. But he went out anyway and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city. Because he had a focus, right? He wanted to preach to people, and this guy was creating a problem. But stayed out in the unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. So that's the fourth scenario. 
is the leper. So we got the mother-in-law, we got the city at the front porch, we got Jesus praying in a secluded place, going out to preach, and then we got the leper. Two things we're going to focus on today. You can probably see it already. We're going to talk about the personal compassion of Jesus. Jesus was compassionate for sure. He was moved with compassion often. You, you, you type in compassion in your Bible search, it shows up a lot of places. And then the primary concern of Jesus. Jesus had a primary concern. He was compassionate, but he also had a primary concern. Make sense? So those are the two things we're going to cover. Let's let her rip. So the personal compassion of Jesus. In today's text, we get a healthy dose of miracles as we witness Jesus heal those who were in need. Amen for that. We see Jesus heal two specific people, the mother-in-law and the leper. And then we also see him heal a group of people, the city that's hanging out on the front porch. Both display compassion of Jesus towards those in need. Simon's mother-in-law was the first thing we see in verses 29, 30, and 31, right? She has a fever. And what happens is the four disciples go to Jesus. And so that's a, that's a model of seeking Jesus on behalf of another. That's a model for us, church, that we can seek Jesus. We're to seek Jesus on behalf of other people. And that's what the four disciples do. What a beautiful picture. And then the leper at the end of this text, he seeks Jesus on behalf of who? Of himself. That's okay too. That's another great model for us. We can go to Jesus on behalf of our own needs. And then we go to Jesus on behalf of the needs of others. And then we see the whole city seeking Jesus collectively. The whole city gathering to seek Jesus collectively. And I think we'd call that an old-fashioned prayer meeting. When we call a prayer meeting and the whole church shows up at this portion, we pray together. I don't know what that looks like here. I don't know if we've ever done that. I think that'd be a really, really cool thing to do. Because I think we're supposed to do that. I think we're supposed to seek Jesus on behalf of ourselves, on behalf of others, and I think we should seek Jesus collectively. Amen? What a great model that text is for us. So the first scenario of the mother-in-law, by faith, the four disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they told Jesus about Simon's mother-in-law, no doubt expecting him to heal her, and that's exactly what he did. He healed her. The fever left her at once, and she was able to go to the kitchen and serve the Sabbath meal to the Lord and to the disciples immediately after she was healed. I think that's interesting. Isn't service to our Lord one of the best ways to thank Him for all He's done for us? Shouldn't that be true? Shouldn't service to our Lord be one of the best ways that we thank Him for all that He's done for us? This is my personal belief in the church, that everybody who has come to know Jesus Christ as an extension of their gratitude for all that God's done for us needs to serve Him and His purposes. I believe that. And I know that we all have limited time frames in which to serve, but I believe we're to serve the church and God's purposes on some level. I believe that. And if this is your church home, I would challenge you to find a way to serve. We have one of the highest serving populations I've ever experienced. Our church serves, and I love that. So continue to do that. Thank you for doing that. And if this is not your church home, find a church home and serve there. What a great way to extend our gratitude for all God's done for us to serve him, just like Simon's mother-in-law did. Matthew Henry says this about this text. He says, Observe how complete Jesus' cure was on the mother-in-law, that when the fever left her, it did not, as usual, leave her weak. When we're healed from a fever, we're usually still weak. She's not weak. But the same hand that healed her also strengthened her so that she was able to minister to them. 
The cure is in order to fit for action, Matthew Henry says. The cure was in order to fit us for action, that we may minister to Christ and to those that are His for His sake. Can I get an amen? I think Matthew Henry got it right. The second scenario, so that was the mother-in-law. What was the result of the miracle of Simon's mother-in-law? Well, Sabbath had ended, sundown, the whole city shows up at Peter's door. Now, Peter's either got a really big door or it's a very small city, right? It's interesting. The whole, what does that look like? Well, Capernaum was about 1,500 to 2,000 people. Scripture tells us they were all there. Interesting. They brought their sick and afflicted in the Lord, who was no doubt weary from a very busy day. He preached in the synagogue. He's healing mother-in-laws. And he spends a lot of time with a lot of people and healed many. But I want to point out something to you in these verses. Look at verse 32. It says, When evening came, after the sun had set, which officially ended Sabbath, they began bringing to him all who were ill. Let me, let me backtrack. They began bringing to him, the word after him is the word all, right? You see that in your Bibles? All who were ill and those who were demon-possessed and the whole city. It's the same word as all. So it's like all who were ill and all the city. Same Greek word. So verse 33, And the whole city or all the city had gathered at the door. Verse 34, and he healed many. It's a different Greek word. Who were ill. He healed many who were ill and with various diseases and cast out many demons. Different word. Many, many and all and whole. All and whole, same thing. Many, many, not the same word. Now, I don't know if it was a time constraint issue. Jesus is like, man, I've got to get some rest. I just can't help you all. Or if he chose not to heal some for various reasons. Don't know. It's not real clear, but I think it's interesting. Mark used a different word. We're going to unpack that as we continue. And so it's an interesting scenario that the whole city shows up at someone's door. And what that tells me is that a city, no matter what size, every one of us is in need of Jesus. Every one of us needs Jesus on some level. That's why the whole city's there. They all recognize they need Jesus on some level. Now the third scenario, the leper. It might be easier to grasp our Lord's compassion for a woman with a fever, but that our Lord would meet and touch a leper might be beyond our understanding. Lepers were supposed to keep their distance and warn everyone that they were coming. Unclean is what they would say. Can you imagine? Unclean. Unclean. And everybody just scattered around a leper. And Jesus touches this leper. They were supposed to keep their distance and warn everyone that they were coming lest other people would be defiled. And you can read about that in Leviticus 13 if you wanted to. But Jesus had compassion on this man and he healed him. And he did it with two things in verse 41. Look at verse 41. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and spoke to him. He healed him with his word and with a touch. What a great picture of ministry. As with the fever of the mother-in-law, so with the leprosy. It was gone in an instant. This man knew that Jesus was able to heal him. He even says it. But he was not sure he was willing to heal him. And leprosy parallels sin. And we're going to unpack that a little bit. There's a corollary between leprosy and sin. And lost sinners today oftentimes have an unnecessary concern like this leper. Are you willing? God is willing to heal us and deliver us from our sin. God made it abundantly clear that he is not willing that anybody should perish. 
but that every person should be saved. There's a couple of verses which we may know of. Second Peter 3, 9, one of them. The Lord's not slow about His promise, but He's patient because He doesn't wish for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If you read the tests for leprosy as described in Leviticus chapter 13, you'll see how leprosy is a picture of sin. Like sin, leprosy is deeper than the skin. Like sin, leprosy goes deeper than the skin. It spreads. You can read all about this in Leviticus 13 if you want to. Leprosy spreads just like sin spreads. It defiles us and isolates us from the community of God. And it renders anything that it touches fit for the fire, just like sin does. Anyone who has never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior is spiritually in worse shape than this man was physically. The leper reveals to us how we are to come to Christ if we haven't done so already. The first way is with great humility. With great humility. Look what it says in verse 40. The leper came to Jesus, how? Beseeching him, begging him, and falling on his knees. That's how we're to come to Jesus. Lord, I need you. I am lost without you. I'm dead in my sins because of my lack of relationship with you. It takes great humility to get to that place. God loves us so much. He helps us and tries to help us get to that place. But we need to come with great humility. The second thing we need to do that we get from this leper is we need to come with a firm belief of his power. So we have to come with great humility and with the firm belief that he's powerful. Look what it says in verse 40. You can make me clean. Not I hope you can, not I wished you could, not there might be a chance. You can. So he had a firm belief in the power of God. And the third way the leper came was with submission to God's will in his life. He said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He had the conviction, but he was also submissive to God's will. If you're willing, you can. So we're to come to Jesus the same way, with humility, with belief in his power, and a submission to his will. Jesus commanded this man not to tell anybody. He was to go to the priest and follow the instructions that were given to a leper that had been cleansed, which you would read about in Leviticus 14, so that he might be declared clean and received back into the social and religious community, life of the community, like you and I. The crowds that came to get help from Jesus created a serious problem for him because it hindered him from preaching the word as he intended to do. Because why? That's the reason I came for, Jesus said. Don't mess with my mojo. Don't be going telling everybody I got a word to preach. Why did Jesus heal? Was it strictly because of his love and compassion? Jesus was often moved with compassion. But it's not the only reason he healed and did things of this nature. Matthew 8, verses 16 and 17. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. Same scenario. Verse 17. Why? This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. It wasn't just for compassion's sake. It was to fulfill prophecy, to let the world know, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Because he's got a message for you. It was to fulfill and let people know, this is the guy. And he's got something important to say to all of us. So that's the personal compassion of our Lord and Savior. He's compassionate for sure. But now I want to talk about the primary concern of Jesus. The primary concern of Jesus, the second thing we said we were going to talk about. Almost smack dab in the middle of these 17 verses, from Mark 129 to 45, 17 verses, almost right in the middle, 
amidst these three examples of compassion of the mother-in-law and the leper and the whole city, we see Jesus where? In verses 35 to 39, where do we see Jesus? We see him in a secluded place doing what? What? Praying. And then we see him on the move doing what? Preaching. We see him praying and we see him preaching. In the middle of all this compassion, we see him praying and we see him preaching. I suppose if I were accused of doing nothing at this church but these two things, preaching and praying, I'd be okay with that. Oh, I'm compassionate. I'm a very compassionate person. I think God calls us to be compassionate for sure. For sure. Remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the identity of Jesus and all the, and the prophecies of him in Malachi and Isaiah, but we talked about Jesus' name. Do you remember what we said the name Jesus meant? Does anybody remember that? means the Lord saves. His very name speaks of why He came. His laser-like focus of what He was called to do, to save sinners from their sin. And so we call Him Savior because His name means the Lord saves. I would venture to say that the ultimate expression of Jesus' compassion is the gospel message that He came to preach. That makes sense, right? What could be more compassionate than to die for our sins that deserve death, that he would die a death that we deserve to die? That's compassion. We were, we are dead in our sin. He died the perfect death to pay the price on our behalf. We must go and do likewise, showing compassion both in word and and indeed, of course. Luke twenty four nineteen says this. There was a conversation. He said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in what? Mighty in deed and mighty in word in the sight of God and all the people were to be no different. As the text shows us, late hours the night before did not keep Jesus from his appointed meeting with his father the next morning. What a great example. Jesus had a busy day preaching in the synagogues, healing the mother-in-law and a whole city at his front porch, and he's up early while it's dark to go pray. i got to confess, I'm not that guy. I'm not an early morning guy. I'm rarely up before, unless it's light outside. But I do try to give the Lord the first fruits of my day. First thing I do every morning is I go and spend time in the Word. I usually pray later in the day. I'm not, it's just the way I'm wired. But what a great model for us. Jesus' response to his newfound popularity was solitary prayer. He always found time, always found time, always found time to be alone with His Father. Jesus always found time to be alone with His Father. It's no surprise that Jesus had such authority in His ministry and such power in His ministry because His prayer life was so disciplined. There's other examples throughout the book of Mark, if you want to write these down, where Jesus went away to pray and He went away to pray and He went away to pray. Where does your solitary prayer take place? Where does your solitary prayer take place? How often? How often? Where does it happen and when does it happen? Are we willing, like Jesus, are we willing and allowing the Lord to fuel our ministry, to fuel what we're called to be as followers of Christ? Do we let the Lord fuel us through prayer? Raise your hand if you have a car. I have a car. 
Raise your hand if you have a car. Okay, keep it up. Keep your hand up if the car needs fuel. All right. Keep it up if you're the one who has to put fuel in that car. Okay, keep it up if you have to do it over and over and over and over again. Right? Now, okay, put your hand down. Very good. Same as me, right? Okay, so why? Why do we fuel that car? It needs it. But it helps us manage our life better. It helps us be more effective. People, fueling a car. Okay, so let's do some math. I, I rounded everything down. From my house to the gas station, it's probably more than two minutes. But I'll just say it's only two minutes. Two minutes to the gas station, maybe four minutes to fill up. It's probably more, right? So I'm four minutes to fill up and two minutes back home. That's eight minutes fueling my car. I fuel my car about every six or seven days. So let's say once a week. So eight minutes a week, I fuel my car. Times 52 weeks is 416 minutes. 52 times 8 is 416. That's 6.933 hours per year that I fuel my car. I spend 6.933 hours fueling my car. That's about 35 minutes a month. Do we pray 35 minutes a month? Some of us probably don't. I used to be one of those people. I pray a lot now. God's put me in a place where I have to pray a lot. And I'm so okay with that. I don't always like it. But the Lord has just got me in a place where I seek Him daily. Vocational ministry is challenging. Putting together a word every week is challenging. It just keeps me on my knees. And I thank God for that all the time. Serving His purposes should keep us on our knees to fuel His purposes. It's not easy for me to pray. It's not my natural propensity. It's just not. And so God, in His sense of humor and in His wisdom, He knows what He needs me to do to keep me on my knees before Him. It's kind of crazy. And I give Him permission to do that. I don't like that I've given Him permission, and I don't like the liberty He's taken with His permission. But I'm kind of stuck. I kind of signed on the dotted line. I hope we're fueling our ministry. I hope we're fueling our spiritual life as much as we fuel our cars. I hope at least as much as that. Please. So Jesus is praying, but the crowds wanted to see Jesus again. Not to hear his word, but to experience his healing and to see him perform miracles. Nothing wrong with those things. But it's not the primary reason he came. Peter was surprised that Jesus did not rush to meet the crowds, but instead left for other towns where he might preach the gospel. For the first time, Jesus had to clarify his mission for his disciples. And it's in verse 38. Let us go to the nearby towns so that I may preach there, for that is what I came for. It's one of the things I get to wrestle with as the senior pastor of this church, and that is, man, are we keeping the main thing the main thing? And to process with the elders and trustees, are we keeping the main thing the main thing? There's a lot of things the church can do and should do, but boy, we can't lose focus of the main thing. You follow me? Is that okay? Peter did not realize the shallowness of the crowds, their unbelief, and their lack of appetite for God's Word. Too often the church has a lack of appetite for God's Word. We want healing. We want compassion. We want a lot of things from the church, but we don't have an appetite for God's Word. Jesus knew that. He couldn't come down to that. He had to keep preaching because he knew that was the most important thing. Jesus said it was more important for him to preach the gospel in other places than to stay there and heal the sick. Jesus kept in mind something that we must always keep in mind. Jesus knew something that we need to keep in mind. And that's this. Christ's doctrine 
is Satan's destruction. Christ's doctrine is Satan's destruction. He can cast out demons, but if we don't get lost in doctrine, that demon's coming back. He can cast out fevers, but if we're not in doctrine, what does it matter? He can show compassion to a city, but if they're not in doctrine, who cares? It's short-lived. Jesus is interested in eternal life, not a fever, not leprosy. But Jesus is compassionate. He was moved with compassion often, and so should we be. But we must never lose sight of the focus, keeping the main thing the main thing. Is that okay? Let me close with this. i got three quotes. I couldn't decide, so I'm just going to give them all to you. Okay? So you guys are getting the three-for-one special today. Here's the first one. It's called Only the Cross. Through the centuries, many schemes have been propounded for uplifting mankind and bringing in the kingdom of God. These grand-sounding schemes have failed because they ignore the greatest power of all, and that's the regenerating power of Jesus Christ in the life of a human heart. Many years ago, a man named Dr. Lyman Abbott, a prominent pastor in Brooklyn, New York, resigned his church, and he said this in his letter, I see that what I had once hoped might be done for all of mankind through schemes of social reform and philanthropy can only be done by the influence of Jesus Christ. Interesting. There's no dynamo in reform except the, Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ. Wow. That happens. It happens in churches. We do a lot of things, but nothing can impact a life and change a community like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second one, letting the gospel lion out. This is by Charles Spurgeon. He says, A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are books about this kind of thing, it's because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they needed to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to defend the lion. Well, I su should suggest to them, if they would not object, and feel that it wasn't too humbling, that they should kindly stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of the lion defending himself, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. What a great analogy. And lastly, John Wesley. He says this. He says, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon earth. You have nothing to do but to save souls, he says. Therefore, spend and be spent in this work. Listen to this. And go always, not only to those that need you, the mother-in-law, the city, the leper, but to those that need you most. We need Jesus for a lot of things, but the ones who need Him most are the ones that don't know Him and don't know the gospel message. Can I get an amen? Observe, he says, it is not your business to preach so many times and to take care of this church or that house church or this small group, but to save as many souls as you can, to bring as many sinners as you possibly can to repentance, and with all your power to build them up in that holiness without which they cannot see the Lord. Whew. I love those three quotes. I'm going to pray. 
And while I'm praying, the worship band will work their way up. I'm going to pray out of Isaiah 61, verses 1, 2, and 3. If you like this prayer, that's where I found it. Isaiah 61, verses 1, 2, and 3. And when I'm done, the worship band's going to close us in a song. And then, of course, the prayer team will be available to my left and your right after the service. I love this church. I love that you guys allow this to be the central, central focus of our church. Thank you for that. Let's pray. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Pray with me. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. Why? So that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. And everybody said, Amen.